Dave Foreman, thank you so much for joining us today. And I, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. We've been friends for a little over a year now. So thank you for having me, Matt. Yeah, man. So I just want to give the listeners a quick little taste of how we met. And, uh, so if I remember right, it was sometime in like July ish, uh, about two years ago or a year and a half ago. And, uh, we were both at the park. We are single dads on the weekend just because our wives work and stuff. And, um, yeah, I remember you come like we, our kids were playing together and, and you came up to me at the end of hanging out and you're like, Hey man, it's kind of hard being a dad. And I just moved to the area and looking for other friends. Are you on the you know, I don't want to be weird, but can I have your number? And I was like, that takes balls. So I was like, yeah, man, for sure. And ever since then, we've been hanging. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, something that I don't do often, ask guys out at the park. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. You didn't was... ask me on a second date, though. You just asked for my number. You just left me hanging. That's what I do. Yeah. Where'd you grow up, man? Uh, Orange County, California. So surfer kid in San Clemente. And, uh, yeah, born, raised Orange County. How long did you live there? Lived there my whole life, really, until um, we moved out here to Colorado. So, And you moved during COVID? We moved during COVID, yes. We were looking to buy a house, and the real estate out there was just exploding, and we could not get anything there that fit our needs uh, for less than 650, 700K. And that got you like a two-bedroom, two-bath, no attached garage, no nothing. Um, so we were like, yeah, we need to, we need to move. That's when we had our first on the way and, uh, yeah. just wanted a little bit more space. So what brought you to Colorado? Do you have like family out here? Or? My wife's brother lives out here. Okay. And, uh, the, the plan was that the whole family was going to move out here. Um, but it's still just us and her brother, but he lives right up the street and their kids are great. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of all that we have out here, and part of the reason that I uh, jumped off the ledge at the park that day and took the leap of faith to ask you out because <laughs> it uh, yeah had absolutely no friends out here, nobody. I was stay at home dad at that time, so it was a a pretty challenging transition. Yeah, especially during the lockdowns and everything, and just being eased up. Um, yep. You know, like, and, and, I, and I do admire you for that because it's hard. It is, it is hard to make friends in the adult world, let alone adult friends that also have kids. Yep. You know, so I do want to dive in and I know you're, uh, you're the founder of Nest Heads and I want to dive into that because it's so interesting. Uh, but to begin with, just to give a, give the listeners a little bit of your background. So you went to high school, I'm assuming in Orange County. Yeah. So I actually went to 12 years of private Catholic school. So went to grade school for eight years, private Catholic school, and then a private Catholic high school. Uh, so yeah, I had, had a lot of exposure to uh, Catholicism. Dude, I had no clue about that. Yeah. I that, tried this to is, that this is like, brand... <laughs> why? Um, there's just a lot of associations with it. And, sure. uh, you know, it's, yeah, I guess as we progress with this podcast, more will be revealed there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, spent spent a lot of time. In what the was church. your first job out of high school then? Did you go from high school straight into like a trade or something like that? So I guess just while I was in high school, I worked at. Uh, I got my first job at fifteen, bussing tables. Uh, I worked at uh, CompUSA, so that was kind of like my first real serious job, uh, selling computers, selling computer parts, all that stuff. Moved over to Best Buy, sold digital cameras, uh, was selling PDAs. That, that's right before the iPhone came out, was selling PDAs and digital cameras, all that stuff. Um, worked at Red Robin, so that was a fun job. Yum. Yeah, yum is right. So a lot of service industries here and there. Yep. And then, uh, then, then where did your life lead you after that? So I was, uh, let me rewind. So is that like the first, cause I know nest heads is really like AI focused and like really cutting edge. Uh, is that kind of where you got your taste of technology is working 
you know, working at those companies? I'd say that's where I got a little bit of exposure to it. I was really into computer gaming at that time and um, just really always liked technology. But I, I was really into rally racing. That's kind of like the beginning of all of this. Uh, this, this, my own personal story was rally racing. Um, when I was actually flying planes back when I was like 16, 17-ish, uh, the goal that I had was to go to Embry-Riddle Flight School um, or Embry-Riddle Air Force Academy um, after high school. That was my, my plan. But uh, three days after I graduated, that's when my dad passed away. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Something Nothing Everything podcast. Without your support, this podcast couldn't happen. So I really appreciate it. If you have a moment, make sure you hit that like, follow, and subscribe button. And then if you want further information on how to get involved with the podcast, as far as submitting questions, go over to www.snepodcast.com. Again, that's www.snepodcast.com. Now back to the show. Uh, so it kind of left our whole family in financial turmoil. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't justify leaving the state to go anywhere, leaving my mom and sister. So it was... Um, I, I kind of had to really settle into what I was interested in, which was rally racing. Um, you know, I, I got into a lot of trouble, was a street racer, um, you know, was, got really into gambling, just kind of fell off the deep end when my dad passed away. So it was a really, really challenging time for me. Um, so I naturally went, started working at like performance shops mm -hmm. and, uh, did a lot of tuning on vehicles, building engines, all that stuff. And then when I was about 22, that's when I started my own shop. Um, so you said three days after graduating high school, mm -hmm. was it, uh, if you don't mind me prying a little Not bit, at all. Um, Let's go. was it, was it something that was anticipated like cancer or was it just a sudden? So at, when I was 16, so about two years before he passed, uh, he went into the coma, in, into a coma for uh, like two weeks and he died a couple of times, like his heart stopped. So we all were pretty prepared for it, but it was kind of a random thing. My dad had a, um, he had his own nest heads, his own uh, inner demons, his battles that he had. And, and what he would do in those times is he would, be like, no, I'm above this. I'm going to power through it. So what sent him in the hospital the first time was actually um, him getting sick and like, no, I'm going to power through this. And he was went on a long run during the rain, got pneumonia. Um, and he and, and through that process, they discovered some uh, heart defect that he had. And um, yeah, and, and just ever since that point, the, the remaining two years of his life, he was just he was just off. And then just middle of the night, uh, mom comes screaming, you know, barging through my door in the room uh, that my dad was on the ground. And I went in there and, yeah, just tried to revive him and couldn't do anything. And it was a, a pretty... So that was when you're 16, the first time he went into the coma. And mm -hmm. now you're talking about when he, when he passed away. Yep. So that was three days um, after I graduated <sighs> yeah. and just... Uh, yeah, it really shook up my whole entire framing of reality and yeah. uh, everything that I was taught the last 12 years of Catholic school just instantly went out the window. And it, it I don't blame it on uh, the church or on the the education that I had. It mm -hmm. was it was great, but uh, it was just my interpretation of all of it, you know, and the reason that people die. And uh, there was just a lot of a lot of reframing that needed to be done. So it was really for me. Uh, a moment like a rebirth moment where it was mm -hmm. like what the fuck do i do now you know uh, i now have to pick up all these pieces everything my entire reality just got put into a blender and shaken up and what were your feelings when it when he passed was it uh just to throw some ideas out there was it like a why me why is this happening to us or anything like that? you know again it was so uh it was so intense like right when it happened, because a, a lot of my understanding of why people died was um, because they deserve it or mm -hmm. they were being called for, you know, some higher purpose or something. And and just I, I could not accept anything that I was taught at that at that point. From so it was Catholic school. Yeah. Yeah. 
So then you then you really kind of delve into uh, thrill seeking. Yeah. Why Why'd you do that? Was it to numb some of the the complicated feelings that you're having? Yeah, just. I, it was overwhelming all of the internal uh, demons and struggles that I had at the time. And uh, it was, it was the easy way out. I had, you know, friends that were really into street racing and uh, got, like I said, really into gambling, just a lot of these really unproductive behaviors. And uh, it, it took me a really long time to unwind all of that and unpack it all. But uh, you know, many, many years of therapy, that I did in my twenties. Once I got uh, a little serious about it and realized that, you know, I can't, can't keep doing this. Um, it's not, you know, and as you mature too, a lot of these things, uh, kind of reveal themselves to you. So at 18, you really started diving into this. When did you kind of pull the throttle back? You said you went to therapy in your twenties. Is that when you started dialing things back? Cause Raleigh racing's intense. It's like, yeah, go, so go, all, go. all of the racing that I did was, regrettably, on the street until I was, uh, yeah, until I really started my shop. So I started the shop at 22, um, and I got really serious about business and entrepreneurship and uh, learned just a tremendous amount from that process. I started it with three grand, and I don't know how I got approved for a lease, Uh on a 22 year old kid coming in with three grand in yeah. his pocket saying, I've got a dream. <laughs> yep. It, you know, it's that, that fake yeah. it till you make it thing, you know, gotta, gotta do what you have to do to, to, uh, make your dreams your reality. And, yeah. uh, it was, it was a really interesting thing. I really didn't know how to do anything on cars, uh, very deeply. I didn't know how to do a timing belt job. And that was the first thing that I was marketing. Um, I knew I could do it safely. I knew I could do it properly. And, uh, you know, within like a year or two, we were known as the guy to go to, uh, for timing, for timing belts. Exactly. That's wild. Yeah. So it, it's been, it's been quite the journey and in, uh, and then that's when I'd say it's like 25 and I was building a rally car for like four or five years, uh, even before I had the shop, that was part of the motivations to get in the shop was to have a place to be able to store and work on my race car. Um, and looking back, it's like the silliest thing in the world to start a business and to, uh, you know, pursue like a career just to have somewhere to store your car and, and <laughs> yeah. work on it. But, uh, and then I did, I did my first rally race at like 25, 26 and I got into, uh, drifting too. Okay. So I got my pro license for drifting back in 20, I think it was 2014. Uh, so that was a lot of fun, but I was spending like $5,000 a weekend on tires. We'd go out, uh, burn up 32 tires just in a day. So it was oh a God. very expensive hobby. Did you make, I was about to say it's, it's an expensive hobby, but did you make any money off of it? No, so, no. Even, even the pro guys, unless you're like, like in the top, 10 i'd say you're not you're not making anything it's all just so were you taking money from the shop and dumping it into that as a hobby yeah okay that makes well it's marketing so business right oh yeah yeah i guess so and you just drive around with a bunch of labels of your own shop on on your car yep did it work it did, did it pull work i mean we got that? a lot of customers from it um certainly don't think it was like justifiable again looking back it was um all of that was again a result of me not taking the the dive inward and answering that that call. You were seeking outward. Yep. Yeah, I can uh, I can relate to that with the thrill seeking aspect of life, and it's very easy to kind of branch out and deal with, uh, or not deal with, but numb a lot of things that are going on internally by constantly seeking the next thrill. Right. So you do that. You start that in your twenties. You keep that going until. When? So it was it was a really successful business. I was, uh, yeah, we were doing seven figures every year. Um, let's see, it was it was well staffed. Had a great crew. Uh, they were all really friends. You know, that was part of the problem why that business was so hard to scale. Uh, I also. I also saw so much of the vulnerabilities in human nature and 
flaws in human nature just from these intense situations that you have by operating a auto repair shop like service writers those guys are freaking heroes um what is what is a service writer for people out of the industry so service writers are basically the employees in auto repair shops or at dealerships that are selling service so you bring your vehicle into uh, a dealership and there's a technician that's looking it over and finding stuff wrong with your car the service writer is the person that's communicating that to you and and selling you the work essentially so i always feel like i'm getting ripped the auto repair industry is very challenging and it's it's a it's an incredibly difficult uh business to to be successful in it's uh, the cost of parts are expensive like to find good technicians it, it's very very hard yeah so you do that for a while and then you kept it going until you moved out here, right? To Colorado? Yeah. So I, I had my shop very well staffed up um, and I I was always like tinkering with software projects. I, I had a uh, like a little startup in my early 20s too, probably right before I started the shop that was like uh, basically teaching people how to work on cars uh, and how to how to do these little repairs kind of like guides and um i about so about six years into owning the shop i had it running itself i ended up going to a full-time pro programming boot camp it was like 14 grand um just went for three months didn't go to the shop at all um and just learned how to how to code so it was a, <laughs> it was a really cool experience and got my first little taste of the tech industry. And I'm like, I really want to do this. I really want to transition to this. So I yeah. had a, uh, so I, I decided to do a tech startup it was called part stacker. And it was basically a price comparison website for car parts. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Cause right now there's not really, I guess there is with chat GPT cause you can get it to do anything with its API, but you know, it's, it's, that is one of the more annoying things is when a mechanic comes at you and they're like, yeah, it's $80 for this air filter. Right. And it's like, if you don't know, then you're like, oh, I guess that's just a fair price. You, know, you can Google it real quick, but then it's like, oh, am I sure I'm Googling the right component? Is this the right year make model? Is it a six cylinder or a four cylinder? Right. Is it an all wheel drive or front wheel drive? Right. And so there was, there's always been just this massive gap in the automotive industry that I saw, uh, in, in terms of automotive mm -hmm. software, they were, you know, running these local databases and it took them forever to like move to cloud once cloud was a thing. Uh, so I, I had just a lot of time to think about all of these solutions that needed, um, to happen in the auto repair industry. And that's actually one of these other projects that I've been working on. Um, it's an AI ecosystem for the auto repair shop because none of these things have been done yet. And it, it has been, you know, like five, six years since I closed the shop. So what's that company? Uh, it's called master tech okay. AI and the thought behind it. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a AI ecosystem for auto repair shops. So the idea, um, is tying together, uh, how I see it is really like an AI brain for the auto repair shop. So there's a lot of really clunky, cumbersome processes in the auto repair uh, software industry still. And we're really tying everything together. Right on. I, uh, I worked at a local auto shop when I was 16 years old in Holly Springs. No, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. And uh, I think it was called Fast Lube Plus. What'd you do there? I, I did oil changes. I did coolant, hmm. like flushes. Did tire rotations. Interesting. Um, I was basically, there was the master technician that I would help him out um, and things like that. And I did that for about a year and a half. Okay. Um, and I just remember when I was cashing people out, the user interface for the shop itself was, I swear to God, straight out of the 80s. It looked new. Like, oh, we updated the text to Times New Roman. And it's like, <laughs> oh, this is nice. Right. And, uh, but I just remember sitting there like tabbing through, even as a 16 year old and like, God, this sucks. Like, this is just basic Adobe flash. And it's like, all oh, this could be auto populated. This could be much more like, you know, instead of a billion different services, it could just, I could type. 
didn't have that option and so on. So it awesome. still feels that way, to be honest with you. Are you there, serious? There are some companies out there that are, that are doing some great things and very innovative, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, crazy. it's still kind of funny how far behind the curve they are. Yeah. When did you meet your wife? We met a long time ago. Really? <laughs> 14 years. Yeah. We're coming up on our 15 year anniversary of, of being like, being together. Yeah. So that's um, crazy, man. Yeah. I didn't know that. So she was, she's been here the entire journey. Yeah. Yeah. She, <laughs> I put my first lift on her credit card. She's been just an absolute angel to me and my, uh, and really the support for my ambitions, how blind they were <laughs> for so long. Sure. And just, uh, I, I have no idea. I, that's something that I still can't reconcile in my mind, like how she's stuck with me and stuck behind me all these years. So, yeah, I think it's so vital, man, to have, uh, I feel like there's a lot of influencers on social media these days, uh, that will put on a show and, uh, and kind of act a certain way. And I, I want to be very clear with people without my wife, none of this would be possible. None of, none of this podcast, none of my previous business ventures, none of my future business ventures would be possible without the support. Like almost the, like you said, the blind support for these like crazy dreams that we have and the have to have somebody in your corner go like, yep, let's do it. Yeah. Full send. It, it's, it, it takes good men and makes them great. Yeah. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd honestly probably be dead if it wasn't for Lauren. I'd probably, or I'd be homeless in Vegas. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, it's not. Yeah. You said you were really into gambling. Yeah. Like as like going to the, going to the ATM using credit card. Well, my, or? so my shop was three and a half hours away from Vegas. So, um, and everyone that I worked with, they love, they love to go and have a good time. And um, if, if you want to talk about. Uh, companies that have really deconstructed the human psyche and figured out how to leverage the vulnerabilities in all of our cognition. It's like companies like MGM and Caesars and uh, yeah, really, uh, they, they really know how to get you. So um, are you a slots guy? Like what type of, what type of gambling? So I, I've definitely, it's definitely evolved for me over the years. There's certain slot machines that, uh, that I've really liked, but I've always been really into poker. So, okay. uh, yeah, Texas Hold'em namely was one that I got really into. And that, that was kind of right around the time that my dad passed away, that party poker, uh, popped up like online poker. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, that, that was very challenging because it was so accessible and again, they're gamifying, uh, gambling. <laughs> so they're just leveraging so over, all the systems. <laughs> so over your life, are you are you negative or are you, are you net positive? That, are you keeping track or it's I mean, like that's, this that's point? like the silliest question ever. I don't think anyone can honestly say that they're net positive on gambling. So if you are great, I'm, I'm well, stoked for you. Dude, Stop right now. Yeah. There's that dude up in Las, uh, that's in Las Vegas. That's like kicked out of everything. Oh, and, uh, supposedly he makes millions, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I was I never, if you're Raymond, I was never, smart about it i was never very intelligent about it for me it was more just like oh i got this free offer you know like i can i can literally go get three hotel rooms in vegas right now for free and have access to their diamond lounges which is like top shelf alcohol hmm. and um and you know you free, feel free you, so long as you're playing right right and oh. when you're in your mid-20s you know and you're getting like this vip king treatment like it is pulling on all of your strings you know and making yeah. you feel exactly what you want to feel and uh it's a very dangerous dangerous situation so is that when you really started realizing like these things i i almost call it like the veil right like we a, a good portion of people live in almost like a snow globe and either through trauma or through meditation, through spiritual journeys, whatever it is, this veil almost starts to like part and you start seeing the inner workings of like, oh, okay, I'm doing this because of, you know, whatever it is for me, a really moving, you know, time 
was through therapy. Therapy was that first, like, let's open the blinds a little bit, you know, and see how much you understand about all that. So when you were going to these casinos and, and acting kind of rambunctious, you know, going from street racing to rally racing, which is, you know, good. Nobody wants to, <laughs> the street racing is extremely dangerous. It is. Um, and annoying if you shut down blocks because then commuters, you know. Right. But is is that kind of when you started realizing is the veil started pulling away and you started looking introspectively or like honestly even even now um like if i go to vegas or something um it's definitely in check but i will say like the emotions the uh the feelings everything is so powerful and so overwhelming uh that it it really has, has me, you know, and it's, it's really hard for me to get that separation. Even now knowing everything that I know about human cognition and, um, these vulnerabilities that we have, um, I I think it's a fun experiment to be doing it and try to name these things and understand the processes that are going on. But it's almost just like, fuck it. I don't care. You know, it's so much fun. It's just, there's lights everywhere. There's like perfume in the air vents there. It's, yeah. it's set at this specific temperature. And I'm telling you like the amount of money that goes in to hacking you when you go into a casino, it's astronomical. It's like, it's insane. And it's, it's just like, you know, social, social media, these yeah. multi-trillion dollar attention stealing engines. Like they, uh, they know exactly what they're doing. They've dumped tremendous amount of resources and time into figuring all this stuff out. So my algorithm more recently, two things on social media, my algorithm uh, basically switched over to like live feed. It's been like nonstop murders. Mm. And I don't like, it doesn't bother me, but I find myself watching it. You know, it's like a, you know, factory in China and it's like this giant machine, like, like slapping metal, you know what I mean? And I'm like, you know what's going to happen because this like worker walks over. They're like looking at something. It stops for a brief second, it, like jams. And then they look and then bam. And it's like, I just watched someone, you know, disappear. And it's it's more, and I swear it's because I have a social media for this podcast and I have a social media for my personal. And it's interesting the two to see the two different feeds that if I switch profiles, what the algorithm feeds me. Right. Um, and it, it's gotten pretty dark, man. But a, a, a quick hack that I've heard, and I forgot what podcast I was listening to when I heard this. Maybe It might have been the Joe Rogan podcast when he was, uh, anyway, one of his guests. But they were talking about doom scrolling, right? And you just sit there and you scroll, scroll, scroll. And they said a solution or a hack to kind of get past the addictive nature of it is to actually switch your phone to black white. Oh yeah. So it doesn't have as many of the colors and all this other stuff. I thought it was pretty interesting. And it's like you'll scroll less. Right. You know, while you're sitting on the toilet going through your Instagram. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot of uh like productivity experts and people say that that's their number one hack is putting their phone on grayscale or whatever it is. Yeah. I guess it's uh old school, you know, reading the newspaper. It is kind of boring. The thing that gets me about Vegas, I know this sounds really lame, but like the casinos where you can smoke mm. cigars and stuff. Well, one, the ventilation system is great. So unless you're sitting right next to somebody with a cigar, but I enjoy cigars and there's something that feels pretty nice about walking from blackjack table to blackjack table, smoking a fat stogie, you know, wearing a nice suit. <laughs> well, now you can just yeah. have a joint there. That's the crazy. I don't think so. Uh, oh, yeah. Not not inside the casinos. Well, I so I was there for SEMA. SEMA okay. is the automotive big automotive convention every year. So I was out there, um, yeah, just a month ago, and I haven't been there in a couple of years. So it was really interesting to see uh, marijuana becoming legal there in that time, and and how much that has kind of reshaped the dynamic of Vegas. Uh, there's actual like dispensaries in planet Hollywood. Like, so you're walking through a shopping mall, right? And just, they have a, a little kiosk in the middle that has just a bunch of weed there. And, uh, 
yeah, I was, it was like seven 30 in the morning An Uber for me was like $85 or something. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to look it up. How, how long is this going to take me to get to my, my hotel? It said, oh, an hour walk. So I'm like, okay, I'll pay for my breakfast. I'll stop somewhere nice, you know? So it was seven in the morning I got in. And uh, by the time I got to the strip, you know, it was like 8 a.m. or something. And uh, I was walking behind the, these two people and they were just smoking a joint. And like I was walking at this speed where I couldn't really get past them because they were walking at like a pretty fast pace. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure I got high like just <laughs> from walking on the strip. But uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting interesting time and then they were setting up for f1 which was really oh, cool yeah. to see yeah i went there for a bachelor party back in i think august or something like that and uh they were they were it was in the earlier stages but they were still like setting everything up it was it was pretty cool to see uh how quickly a city can kind of like jump in the high gear right when so much money is coming in exactly now we all know now the f1 uh race was a complete disaster um, just because of the issues on the, I think there was a test run or like the the qualification or something like that, where it sucked the, uh, did you watch the video? I didn't know. So Ferrari was going around and I guess they have so much downward pressure. It pulls, it basically pulls the earth up towards them on how the cars are set up. And it sucked a, uh, a sewer drain <laughs> plate and smacked the car completely destroyed this car and destroyed the track so is this whole shenanigans and then they then people that were coming into town spent all this money didn't get a refund and i think they gave them griffin ended up going uh they gave them like six hundred dollars to spend at the f1 shop (laughs) so hey we're gonna cancel the race or delay it but to to pay you back, we'll give you six hundred bucks to spend on us, so we look good. You know what I mean? It's just crazy. So I, what's the most amount of days you can stay in Vegas and stay sane? Because I know how many I can. Yeah, mine's like one night, maybe two max. Yeah, I was there for uh, three nights, four days. Wow, and I was fried. Completely fried. Not financial. Like financially, I was fried. I was like, I feel like I just got robbed. Yeah. But it is different for me now because I don't drink. So that has definitely changed my relationship with Vegas and everything that comes along with it. Those high octanes, man. Yeah. Those high octanes are just, they're so cheap. They're so good. And man, they will get you drunk fast are they sponsoring this podcast right now no but i i like them so much that i'm okay with telling people if you go to vegas the best bang for your buck is going to be going to find those high octane I, I think it's called high octane or something like that but it's uh you can you spend like 25 bucks it seems like a lot but you get to keep the souvenir and uh you have one of those and you're good for like four hours <laughs> You're good for two hours, and then the, the next two, you're kind of regretting your decision to drink it. But good times, yeah. Three, uh, three day, three nights, four days was too much. I remember on the second day, I, I texted Kaylee, and I was like, "I'm ready for this to end." It was, and it was a weird like I was still getting those dopamine hits, but at the same time, like I had lost a little bit of cash that I was already kind of upset about. Mm-hmm. So I was like, "I came here with cash to lose." So I'm okay with that, but mentally I'm not. Right. But at the same time, I'm having so much fun. And yeah, the nightclubs there are dope though. The pool yeah. parties. It's a fun place. Yeah. So when did you, I guess, uh, kind of dial that all back? It had to have been before you came to Colorado, right? Yeah, I, I would say it was probably right around the time that I was like 20 what 28 29 like when i went to programming school and i really started getting serious about what i wanted to do because i I never saw myself in an auto repair shop the rest of my life it was not something um that i i ever really enjoyed uh i liked working on my own cars Mm -hmm. but it was really more like i really liked racing cars um and getting in that's when i when I could kind of connect with the flow state 
and really feel like I was who I needed to be and, you know, doing what I needed to be doing at the time. So for me, it was like a means to an end almost. The auto shop. Yeah. And working on cars. What was your, what was your mental state during this whole time? Is there anything like significant that, you know, you experienced or anything that kind of changed gears a little bit? Yeah. So I would, I would say, um, I, I did start going to therapy and this was really my first time experiencing therapy was when I was, uh, in my mid twenties. Um, I found this, she was a PhD, uh, psychologist, but she was also like a business consultant. So it was like a really cool transition for me where I was like, Hey, I want to scale my business up. Uh, but I'm also having some of these like mental issues that I, I would prefer to be without. So, uh, like what? Well, yeah, I'd say the gambling was a big thing. That was, that was really challenging for me to get through. Um, the, the drinking that was, that was something that was challenging and, um, just really not understanding the drive. Like, why did I want to scale my business up and take over the world? You know, like, why did I have these internal drivers? And there was just so much, um, like negative feelings and emotions inside of me for so long that it finally got to the point where it was like, I have to address this. I don't want to live like this anymore. It's not, um, it's not fun. It sucks, you know? And I, I feel like a lot of people have that experience at some point in their life. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of people take their life because it is a, in a very intense experience when you just feel like, uh, you know, you're ruminating on the same shit, like for months on end. Uh, so luckily I, I had the resources available to me cause I had so much cash flowing through the shop that, uh, you know, for me to go pay a therapist 150 bucks uh, a week was nothing, you know, and it was, um, isn't that a shame though? Yeah, it is. That, and I'm not, I'm not saying therapists don't deserve that much money because trust me, the shit I talk about with my therapist, he deserves every dollar <laughs> he makes, you know, um, I can imagine. So, but it, it is, it is so sad that there are so many people that are experiencing that regardless of whether or not it's, I, I, I just want to relate it to other people who don't, aren't building businesses, right? You can still have these internal drives that literally almost send you into a psychosis of like, I want, I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to do this. I need to do that. And it's constantly, it's like you're wearing yourself down into the ground and you don't even realize you're doing it because you think you're building yourself up. Mm -hmm. And I know from my military experience there are tons of people that are doing it in their careers. I need to get on rank. I need to, I need to promote. I need to go to this class. I need to do this. I need to do that. And it's such a detriment, not only to themselves, but to their family lives. The, the, they always say, Oh, it's the military sacrifice. There are some things that you don't need to miss. You don't need to miss the first birth of your first child, right? Because you're afraid to say no to a deployment. Like, I get it if we're at a large scale war, but I, I do want to relate it to other people who aren't building a business that that shit still goes on in their brain. Oh, hundred percent. Everyone deals with this shit yeah. like at some point in their lives. And if, if you don't, God bless you like that is a miracle. Yeah. In, in my opinion. Yeah. So you start going to therapy and then it's helping out a lot. Yeah. And, uh, it was just really interesting because I had this transition happen where I was really fascinated by cars and understanding how they work and, you know, taking parts of taking cars apart. And, you know, I, I could literally have like my Subaru in a thousand different pieces, not have any manual, no nothing, just from memory somehow, um, be able to know what little nut, what bolt goes where, what part goes where and put it all together and the thing runs, you know, and that to me was always really fascinating. Um, and, and to be able to see something that has such a massive impact on our lives, a vehicle, you know, mm -hmm. it's a vehicle to take you to places to, um, it's, you know, the second most expensive asset that most people purchase in their lifetime. 
And uh, just being able to see something that impactful and be able to see it as a system, you know, in, in little tiny parts and as a whole, there was something about that that always struck me. And as I started going to therapy and I started learning um, some, I just started picking up on the process because for me, I, I want to know how to do shit. I want to know how to fix stuff myself. I don't want to have to call a plumber. I want to be able to do it myself. Uh, so the same applied with therapy. And I started seeing the patterns and just absorbing them and uh, having this intuition come to me where it was like, hey, um, there's a lot of parallels between cars and yourself. Like if you can figure out how to diagnose a car, you can diagnose yourself. Um, so I, yeah, I started getting really interested in like psychodynamics and psychotherapy, psychology, all these different fields. Um, and it was just really interesting too. I had a, with that, uh, therapist, there was, um, it was kind of an inappropriate situation that happened on, uh, coming from her end that was really strange. Uh, I don't want to get in the details of it, but I ended up going to another therapist. Um, this was one that my wife, uh, was going to and, um, her, her and I actually went to this couple, this couple's therapist and she was great. She was, she was awesome. But I, I like needed more cause I, it kind of got to the point where I was like, we're just talking, we're just having conversations. Like I want to know more. I want to deconstruct this shit. I want to be able to, uh, learn this stuff so I can spread it to other people and transfer it, uh, to other people that I see struggling that, that to me was like a huge opportunity. And, uh, and ironically, she was like, you know what, there's this therapist that I think you would connect really well with. So I ended up going to him and he had this system and this structure. It was, it was just mind blowing for me that this guy came up with this after his like 95 years of doing this. Uh, this was what he came up with and it was, it was so simple and elegant. And I actually went to him and I'm like, Hey, can we like, let's build this. Let's make this into an app. And he do you remember his name. I, I do not want to say his name because, oh, okay. um, he, so I ended up having my wife go there with me one of these sessions cause I wanted her to learn this. Um, he was very apprehensive to making it into an app. He was very sure. protective over his system and his, his structure. And I was, I respected it. I just wanted to lean in and keep learning his process. And I, I brought my wife in there and, uh, you know, we were having some like a challenging situation that her and I were going through that we were talking to him about. And he was, he was like teaching her and he, he had asked me a question and it made me like giggle a little bit cause it, it made me uncomfortable and brought out something, but he, he uh, interpreted that as like me making fun of him or something. And he just lost it, dude. He like, uh, he started like spitting in rage and just like, you think you can turn this into a fucking app, blah, 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 all this. And I'm like, this guy, I'm, we're paying him $350 an hour. And I broke him like somehow <laughs> unintentionally. <laughs> um, so and that was how unprofessional too, man. It was wild. And my wife and I still like laugh about that and um, just joke around about the situation uh, a lot because it was so like, what happened there? Yeah. But needless to say, that was the last time we saw him. And that, that was actually <laughs> the last therapist that I, I went to. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to spearhead this shit. I'm going to, I'm going to really learn and deconstruct it. And there were so many times where it was like, ah, oh, this is it. This is the fountain of youth for mental health, you know, and just, um, and then learning more and more and like becoming humbled yeah. by different processes and just the complexity of the human mind. And like, you know, like, um, yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to figure this shit out. <laughs> do you feel like, uh, did you do any traveling or anything like that? Yeah. Did you experience any like, yeah. So that was another, uh, amazing thing that the the shop afforded me was I was able to go to China. So the okay. best man at my wedding, Rob, um, 
he's a really fun guy and he he was born in shanghai and he still had family out there so he invited me on a trip with him and um, i was actually starting a tire recycling company okay so i was really interested um, that was one of the problems that i saw in the auto repair industry too is like and and it's still there like you see all these tire shops that just have stacks and stacks and stacks of tires outside and they're actually really like bad for our environment they're really um bad because they have they like store a lot of critters and have a lot of disease in them and stuff so this was a problem that i saw like oh well that's just money sitting there so i did the did the uh the work and and built out a business model went to china with my buddy rob what and, year was this Oh man, this was, uh, the reason why I ask is it sounds like you're so like, uh, with your experience of Catholicism and I, I, I do, how do I say this? There is a separation of faith and introspectiveness, but sometimes they coincide and we've had conversations offline before where it's like, you know, uh, faith can give you a perspective on something or like a religion can give you a perspective. So I was, I'm just curious, did you ever look into like Buddhism, Hinduism? I know that's pretty big in Asia. I don't know about China, but just in Asia in general. And so at, at that time, I really wasn't exploring that part of it. I still kind of had like this weird, bad taste in my mouth for anything religious or spiritual based. Yeah. Um, so that, that transition. And when I, uh, I, I guess we'll talk about that later, but that was uh, something that kind of came a little bit further along in the journey. Okay. But when I went to China, it was really uh, fine tires. Yeah, figure. Out. <laughs> well, so I we went to some uh, tire recycling manufacturer, like some plant manufacturer. So they made the equipment to turn tires into crumb rubber, okay. and it's really interesting because there's actually a lot of business cases for and products that you can make out of tire. You know, you can make asphalt. Uh, you mm. can make fuel, tire-derived fuel. Um, you can make like playground uh, flooring. Like there's all of these things. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was way too much money to spin up. It ended up being, you know, like a like $2 million that I needed to raise. Um, and I just didn't know how to raise money at that time. Well, right on, man. But well, yeah, Shanghai is freaking awesome. And China was like the coolest the coolest place that I've ever gone to. And there was, and I, I think this was another really uh, transformative experience for me is it was the first time that I really went somewhere and felt like a complete alien. You know, you land at the airport you get off the plane and no one speaks your language. You can't, can't communicate with anybody. Um, all of the signs, all the advertisements there, they're all in Mandarin. There's no English symbols like you see um some girl on a billboard and there's mandarin symbols and you're like what what the sh what the fuck are they selling and you're like i have no <laughs> idea um but it but it was really interesting and in, like looking back on it now and understanding like what what that kind of afforded me it afforded me an experience where i wasn't being bombarded trying to be sold stuff you know or having these systems hijacked because they they just couldn't communicate with that part of me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there's a there's an interesting uh, Instagram post. I, I do enjoy Instagram just because of the algorithm I have for my personal profile is better than the algorithm I had for the SME podcast. Like I said, it, it kind of went unhinged. Um, but there was this really cool photo that I saw, and it was like I've never done psychedelics for the record except for ketamine, which was therapeutic and done under, you know, the auspice of a, of a doctor. Um, but it's, it was this post of like what you see before you, uh, I think it said ascend or something like that, ascend past the materialism. And it's like a bunch of advertisements and it's like, it's like times square in New York city. Right. And it's like what you see afterwards like after you ascend of like pulling this veil away and it's like, obey, consume, obey, mm. obey, consume, mm. consume. And it's like, that was pretty moving for me because it was, it, as you do a lot of introspective work, you start looking at the uh, strings that are almost being pulled and, and going back to Las Vegas, how much these companies have put into 
learning you as a person and what have you done to learn yourself? Right. And I, I think it's a great analogy of what you said earlier of, of we, you know, deconstructing this vehicle and putting it back together. I've always thought that our bodies are literal vehicles or vessels for our souls and nobody takes the time to learn it. And that's what's so fascinating too, is just like really taking this journey seriously and, and exploring all of these different uh, religions and sciences and, uh, and just all of these different people from all these different walks of life throughout human history from different time periods and just really getting to the essence and to the bottom of what it is that they are getting to, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it aligns exactly with what you're talking about. And, um, I, I try not to be very like, uh, like too set on anything. Cause I feel like that's where you get too much into the, the propositional too much into the personal story that really is the same fabric as the veil that you're talking about. Uh, you're just exchanging one for the other. And it, it, it is a humans like comfort, you know? So if we can feel like we're progressing, we're very happy to go from one comfort to another comfort, but it could still be that veil. So I completely agree. Totally. I need to pee real quick. So we'll take a quick little break and then we'll, uh, we'll jump back into more about the, uh, you know, the venture you're on now with Ness heads. Sounds great. Cool, man. Coming up next on the Something Nothing Everything podcast. So I decided to close the shop um, back in 2018. I just something wasn't right. Something didn't feel right. Here I found myself uh, no shop, no startup, no job, no nothing. Just sitting in my apartment playing Fortnite like what the fuck am I doing with my life? So we, we had gone out to the desert camping and I had this this weird experience. I don't know if you call it a mystical experience or something. There wasn't any like psychedelics or anything involved there. Uh, but I, you know, and I, I was really at that time like contemplating killing myself. 